Greetings to all of God's people. This is again Mordecai Joseph. We are now on uh, study number nine, that is tape number nine. And if you remember, we just finished the study about the Sabbath, the subject that we went through from uh, Genesis to uh, Revelation. It's a very big subject, so we had to cover it in uh, about four programs. Anyway, we're back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1, where we read again, Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the hosts of them were finished. And in other words, you have a process of finishing of the heavens and the earth. And then we read in connection with that, in verse 2, And on the seventh day God has ended his work which he had done. And basically, God ended his work, and the heavens and the earth were finished. It's the same word by Hulu in Hebrew, which means that in both cases, God was finishing it through a process of time. And it is important to, to notice that God says that, as we read in verse 7, And on the seventh day God ended, that is finished, his work, which he had done. Notice that he says, on the seventh day, not on the sixth day. After now you get the impression that in six days God made heaven and earth, and that was it, that was the end of it. But God is specifically dictating to Moses here to write in verse 2, And on the seventh day God ended his work, or finished his work, which he had done. In other words, he is giving you, in essence, a prophetic uh, understanding here of a future event and the future link to this statement. In six days, God allowed man to go his own way, and obviously, during all this time, the majority of humanity went their own way, and which was not God's way. And so they need to be restored, and the process of restoration is a, is a process that would last, you might say, a uh, thousand years. That's what the millennium is all about, which is again symbolized by the Sabbath. That's why we covered it in a very thorough manner uh, previously. Because when God says that on the seventh day he ended his work, that means that the work that God created, which is not just to set the heavens and the earth, but also men, that's the epitome of his creation, that process is not finished until the seventh day. And therefore, on the seventh day, when the creator of men comes to this earth again as a God of gods, as a, that is, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in the person of the Messiah, and the person of the Redeemer, and the Deliverer of Israel, and for all of mankind, in the person of the Lord of the Sabbath, it is on that day, on the Sabbath, that this God of men, the creator of men, is going to finish his work with men. And so for a period of a thousand years, God is going to bring all of humanity to repentance. And therefore, when you read in verse 2, and on the seventh day God ended his work, that is, finished his work, he's already producing here, in essence, or laying the, the ground for a future reality. And that's the reason. In other words, when you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, you read words, you read sentences, you read passages, you have to go behind the lines, so to speak, or in between the lines, or behind the scene, and see what is it that is on the mind of God. When you read it, you don't necessarily get it, but when you cover the whole book from A to Z, and now the whole information is in your mind, then when you go through every single scripture, so many other scriptures come to mind, and your understanding expands, and then you can say, oh, that's what it means. Where in the beginning, if you don't have that information, you are extremely limited, just like a child. A child is extremely limited in knowledge and understanding, 
but as time goes by and he accumulates more information, then when he says something to the child or to the, to the younger kid now or later on teenager or an adult, uh, he gets an awful lot out of it because he has an awful lot of background and that's very important. And an awful lot of people do not have enough background in the Bible to understand very much when they go through it and so they're very limited. Anyway, that's the purpose of this study, to give a, a greater meaning, greater understanding, more background, more context, so we can have a more perfect understanding of what God means when he says, whenever he said it, either in the beginning or the end of the book or in the middle or anywhere in between. And so that's what we read here. And then we read in, uh, at the end of the verse, And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Uh, again, you've got a problem when you read it in English, for that matter. Anytime you read anything written in any given language, when you read it in the translation, something is always lost in the translation, the meaning is not always conveyed properly, and you really don't get the picture as you should. And for that reason, uh, man, thankfully, has provided for those who do not know the language, the concordances and uh, many other uh, health books to fill in the gaps. And so that is very important too. And that's why I said earlier, and I will repeat it again, because it's extremely very important in the study of the Bible. Always get the background. To get the background, you have to go to the language, you have to go to history, you have to go to the culture, you have to go to many sources. That's how you get the background, not only to the book itself. And then you get the context, and then you have a better understanding of the meaning. And so here when it says, and he rested on the seventh day, the Hebrew does not say, and he rested. The Hebrew says, and he stopped. And there's quite a bit of a difference between rested and stopped. Obviously, when you stop, you rest. But God is trying to convey something else at this point. Now, when we read in uh, the Ten Commandments, the instruction about the Sabbath, there God used the word, and he rested. In Exodus 20 and verse 8, especially verses 8 to 11, speaking about the Sabbath, but specifically in verse 11 where he says, and he rested on the Sabbath, therefore he wants men to rest too. But at this point he, he dictated to Moses to write, and he stopped. And the reason God said, and he stopped, because he had something else in mind that he wanted to convey to uh, Israel, to Moses, and to all of us. In the Hebrew, for example, when you speak about a strike, where people go on strike, in other words, to stop working, it's a work stoppage, they use the word shvita, which comes from the word Shabbat, which comes from the word to stop. And that's what the, the word uh, Shabbat or Sabbath came from. It comes from the word to stop. It does not come from the word to rest. Now, obviously when you stop, you rest. And that was the purpose that God gave men. And not only physical rest, and not only spiritual rest from iniquity or from work of the week, but also resting in terms of the millennium, the concept of the millennium. You're resting from one set of uh, circumstances, which is basically work and doing other, uh, other things, and then spending your time during the Sabbath actually really working an awful lot. Your work now is different, just like you go on vacation. You don't necessarily rest and you do nothing. Oftentimes people get much more tired going on vacation than uh, when they work the rest of the time. So it has a different connotation. So God used in this verse of chapter 2 of Genesis in verse 2, and God stopped on the seventh day, not God rested on the seventh day. God was not tired. So obviously he didn't need to rest. No, he stopped from what he was doing in the past six days. And so on the seventh day, he stopped 
those things, but he began other things to do. And that's in essence what you have also in the future. That's what, the purpose of the millennial rule of the Messiah. Not so from now on nobody does anything, but from now on everybody does which is, uh, that is uh, doing the things that God had in mind for all humanity. And basically the process of repentance is there, the process of rebuilding the earth, the process of reconciliation, the process of coming into the unity, and that's work also, but it's a work of the Sabbath. But to distinguish between the six days and the Sabbath, when you come to a certain point at the end of Friday, you stop, and then you begin again. Now you do works of the Sabbath. And so that's why the, the word was inserted here, and he stopped, and not, and he rested, because that was the connotation that God wanted to, uh, to uh, live with us at this point. So it's important to understand that. And so when he stopped, he stopped from the work of creation. He stopped from the, for us, we are to stop from the work of men. And, of course, when the six days are over, God is going to stop the work of Satan and the work of his ministers and the work of iniquities that came from it. And he's going to begin a new type of work on the Sabbath. So it's not that you rest and you do nothing. Obviously, there is also a need for rest because we work very hard for six days. But that's not the ultimate intent and purpose of it. It has to do more than that. It has to do with the spiritual work that puts an end to the physical work or something else that you do any other time. And so we read that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. You see, in essence, you see four actions here, more or less. In verse uh, one, you begin, that's the heavens and the earth. We're finished, and so there's a finishing process. And then in verse two, again, speaking about the same subject, and God has ended, that is again, finished his work. So he finished his work, and that's what you read there. And then he stopped what he was doing before that. So he finished, and then he stopped, and then we read, and he blessed, and then he sanctified. He had four actions there that are happening on the seventh day. And every one of them has an awful lot of meaning, and I'm not going to go in specific, in detail, into every one, because each one of them is a subject by itself, and that comes as you proceed with the Bible, with the scriptures, with the story, and more of those things will be added into your mind, and you'll have a greater understanding. And so then, when you come back to the same verse, now you have much more information in your mind, and your understanding is far greater, uh, that is, uh, very much expanded, and you get, so to speak, more out of it. So it's very important always, as we read the Word, uh, as we read the Scriptures, as we dig deeper and deeper and deeper into it, we should always realize that we're going to receive more from it as we increase in information and knowledge and understanding and experience. So always bear that in mind when you study the Bible. That's why we never get bored studying it again and again and again and again because our understanding expands all the time and we're going deeper and deeper into it and so we're not studying necessarily the same thing again and again. We're just expanding our horizons as we go deeper and deeper into it. And that's a very important process. And that's why people who do it this way, that develop a hunger and a thirst for more, not just more information, but deeper understanding, more profound comprehension, a greater expansion of the knowledge and understanding. 
because the wisdom of God is unsearchable. The mind of God is unsearchable. So we should never think that just because we read it once or we heard it once, we know it all. It never happens that way. Even God is constantly learning more and more as time goes by. And that's a part of the excitement of being eternal. You learn eternally. You don't stop and you don't hibernate and you don't, so to speak, well, I know it all. What else is there in life? It doesn't work that way. And so we continue with the story. In verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. That is the genesis or the, the history uh, as uh, we read here in uh, King James. That is a New King James. Sort of genesis, the same word in essence. That is uh, in chapter 1. Only a very bare sheet, but basically it's telling you the same thing. It is a genesis, it is a history, it is the way it happened. And so this is the history of the heavens and the earth. When they were created, that is, when God made them, in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. Now here, a new concept is introduced. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In the day is an idiom here. It's not talking about a day, because obviously God didn't do it in one day. He already explained it, that it was six days. And then what is the understanding of those six days? Well, the sun goes by, you have even a greater understanding of that too. So it's important always to remember, when what you read is a literal translation, when it is a metaphor, when it is an idiom. And that expands also your understanding. And so, in the day that God made the heavens and the earth. We shall come back to it later on. Because we, there is another statement there that would confuse people if they don't understand it. If they don't have a background and don't read it in the context. And so, that's what we read here. This is the history of the heavens and the earth. When they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now again, he is introducing here something new. Up to now it was Elohim or God in English, which is not a correct one, to, uh, correct translation, it should be Elohim, because God is only uh, one person, and does not convey what the Bible is trying to convey, but it is Elohim. But here it says, in the day that the Lord Elohim, that is, in Hebrew, Yehovah, the English are translated that to Jehovah, whenever they do it that way, in this case, the translators decided to put Lord instead of Jehovah, which is again a, a not correct translation. And apparently because they did not, maybe there was a, an influencer, a Jewish influence, which is uh, basically they do not want to pronounce this name. And to this day you can never find a Jew that will ever pronounce it. There is a religious Jew that is willing to pronounce this name, Jehovah, because that's forbidden. It became forbidden uh, because of the tremendous zeal to avoid profaning the name of God, and so they began using other names. So, in their mind they felt, this way we're not going to profane the name of God, or not take his name in vain. Well, maybe because of that, the translators used that word to honor whatever, I don't know, maybe that was a Jewish influence there, I, I presume that some rabbis may have been involved in the translation of the King James. But they used the word Lord, which is not correct, because it is Jehovah. And Yehovah introduces a totally new concept. And uh, let's go through it a little bit here. Now, the first one I'd like to make is that it is Yehovah. It is not Yah. It is not Yahweh. You see, it is not Yahshua. But many who have very little knowledge, if any, of the Hebrew language, they don't realize that you can never say Yah 
Yahweh or Yahweh, and you can never say Yahshua. You see, Yah means God. But Yah in Hebrew, when it comes in the beginning, is never Yah. It is changed to Ye. But if it comes as a second syllable or the end of the word, then you can say Yah, like Jeremiah, or in Hebrew, Yirmiyah, or Hezekiah, or in Hebrew, Yechazkiah. You see, Yah will come at the end. But when Yah comes in the beginning, it changes to Ye. So, you see, you know, there is a house of Yahweh, which is uh, not correct, and uh, obviously there isn't enough knowledge and understanding there, no background, no context, no, no proper meaning. And so, that's one point that I'd like to make, because uh, I hear an awful lot of people that uh, like to use that name, Yahweh, for themselves, or like to address him as Yahweh, and for their information, if they are interested in information, it is Yeh, it's never Yah. So, it's Yehovah. Uh, Yehovah comes basically from three verbs in Hebrew. Haya, which means was, Hoveh, which means is, that is present, and Yihye, which means will be. Was, is, and will be. Alpha and Omega, A to Z. In other words, God lives forever. So by introducing this name, He's introducing the concept of the reality of eternity. And that's why some thought that it's more proper, instead of saying Lord, to say eternal. And eternal is much more correct, because in essence, eternal conveys the exact meaning of what Jehovah means. It means was, is, and will be. And that's the reason, later on, Jesus Christ used that name for himself. At least that's the way it was translated in Greek. Uh, I'm sure he didn't speak Greek to, uh, to John. He spoke to him in Hebrew or Aramaic. So he did not say, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That was the Greek translation of it. But when he spoke to him, there was no reason for him to speak to him in Greek. I'm sure he spoke to him in Hebrew. And he basically used the word Jehovah. I was, I am, and I will be. And if you remember, when Moses met him on the mount, the holy mount, the mount of God, he asked him, if I go to the children of Israel and tell them, you sent me, they will ask me, what is his name? Because you see, Egypt was a place, like many other places, like Babylon, of many gods. So, God by itself, or Elohim by itself, doesn't tell you what is the name of that deity. In other words, God or Elohim basically came to mean a deity. But, the question is, what is the name of the deity? You see? So, just by saying Elohim, that doesn't tell you much. All it tells you that it is a deity, you see, or deity. But you have to know, what is the name of it? And so, that's basically what Moses is saying. He says, I go to the children of Israel and tell them that the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, that is in, Genesis, uh, in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 13. They will say to me, what is his name? You see, you're saying the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. By now, you know, they were so much into idolatry, they had many gods. They will ask him, what God are you talking about? Which one of them? You see, it was not the knowledge of only one God and all the rest are idols and really don't exist. They really believed that there were many gods. That's why later on when they created the golden calf, Aaron told them, well, this is your Elohim. That is, this is the deity that brought you out of Egypt. 
But you see, a deity is not a name of a God, it's just a generic name. And so God is also a generic name. But what is the name of God? And so that's what he's saying. What is his name? And what was the answer of God? Well, in English, it says, and God says that his Elohim said to Moses, I am who I am. And there is a problem with this translation because it's a poor translation again. Unfortunately, uh, the translators of the, of the King James, uh, with all the sincerity and uh, a lot of the good work that they've done, which is uh, highly to be commended, uh, they were not necessarily Hebrew scholars. That is, a true, genuine Hebrew scholar who knows everything and can translate not only the word but also the meaning. And so, somebody decided that's the way it should be. But it's not correct. God did not say, I am who I am. God says, Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh. And Ehyeh means, I will be, that I will be. And that's what he said in Hebrew. And I cannot understand why translators that pride himself of being translator does not translate that correctly. Anyway, that's a different issue. And so, God says, I will be that I will be. In other words, God is in the past, God is in the present, God is in the future. You see? So, God is eternal. So, in essence, he's using now the future tense of his name. And he's not using the word here again, Yehovah. But he's using the future tense, which is a part of the name Yehovah, Hayah, Hove, Yehyeh. That is, was, is, will be. And so it's important when, when we study the, uh, this name for the first time as we see it in, uh, in Exodus, that is in Genesis uh, chapter 2 and verse 4, uh, that we should uh, bring all this information to mind. And mind you, you always have to remember that when you read Genesis, when you read Exodus, you're reading what God dictated to Moses. So Genesis, as you read it here, this is not written in the beginning, in the days of Adam and Eve, or before him, before Adam and Eve. It is written when Moses is dictating it on the mount. You see, we are talking about a period of roughly 2,600 years later. And so God is dictating uh, these words, and Moses writes it in this manner. So it's important to keep that in mind. And the word Jehovah itself was not known, apparently, not even to the fathers. Though God is dictating it to Moses at this point, it does not mean that it was known, and does not mean that it was used. And so we go to Exodus and chapter, chapter 6 and verse 2, where God is speaking to Moses, and he's saying to him in verse 2, And God spoke to Moses, that is, Elohim spoke to Moses, and said to him, I am Jehovah, or I am the Lord. You see, I am the Eternal. Now, always when you see Lord, it's always Jehovah, it's never really Lord, because Lord... The word for Lord is Adon, totally different word, which means master, you see? And that word master, or Adon, or Lord, was used only very few times throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And then in the New Testament you read, the master, I am the master, well, he used the word Adon. You see, he didn't say, I am Jehovah, when he spoke to them, because he was in the flesh, and so he did not want to use that word. Uh, for one thing, you know, if he said it in public, he would have been stoned a long time ago. Uh, so, obviously, he didn't want to use that because he was not fully God. Uh, that is, in the sense, in, in his glory, in his majesty, in his divinity, in his power, uh, he was flesh, he was God in the flesh. So, he used the word Adon, or Master, which is used very few times in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures to describe him, too. And so, he says to him, And God 
spoke to Moses, that is, Elohim spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yehovah. You see, I am the Eternal. And I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai. So now he's introducing another name, El Shaddai. And it's not God Almighty, because God is not a correct translation. It's El, which is a singular of Elohim. And Almighty does not mean Shaddai, El Shaddai. It's a totally different word. Uh, now you have to inject a background. What is the background to God Almighty? Why did the translators use the, the, this name? This, why did it translate El Shaddai to God Almighty? Well, God, El, fine, you can understand it. But Almighty, why did they put Almighty instead of Shaddai? Because now you're dealing with a background, a culture of people who were basically Puritans and were Victorians. And when it came to terminology that had to do with bodily function or with sexuality, they always used euphemisms. You see? Uh, in their own mind, they thought, well, it's, it's, it's not proper to use that. And, well, that was a concept. Right or wrong, that's a different issue. So they use the word almighty. But Shaddai does not convey the word almighty, and almighty does not convey the word Shaddai. What does Shaddai mean? Shaddai comes from the word Shad. Shad means breast. You see? Breast means nourishment, sustenance. And Shaddai means the God of my sustenance, or the God of my breasts, plural. And obviously, the Victorian Puritan translators of the King James were not about to use this word at this point. And so they, they switched it to God Almighty. So it's another clue there, uh, how to understand the Bible. Get the background. Get the context, you'll have a better understanding or a better shot at the meaning, at understanding the meaning. And so, here again we find ourselves with the name of God, changed so many times. And God says, don't take my name in vain. And the Jews felt, well, uh, we're not going to pronounce it at all, we're going to use euphemisms. Others, because of whatever other reason they had, Puritanism, Victorianism, uh, did uh, something else and changed the name of God again. Well, God is not interested in that. He wants to be worshipped in truth. You see? Truth. Not what man says is truth. Not the perversion of truth. But in truth, in its purity, in its spirit. And that is very important. And so, that's what we read again in verse 4 of chapter 2 in Genesis. And in, in the day that the Lord God, that is, Jehovah Elohim, made the heaven and the earth. And you would notice now from now on, God is dictating to Moses to write Yehovah Elohim, that is the Lord God, as was translated in English. And so we read in verse, in verse 4 about the new name of God. And we continue, verse 5, before any plant was in the earth and before any herb of the field was grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. So now he's backtracking to Verse 11 of chapter 1, in other words, before the creation of, uh, of man, of the animals, and other things. So at that time, he's, trying, he's exploring now something else. In other words, he's injecting a detail. Uh, you can see very well that when God dictates to Moses, when God dictates to the prophets, when God writes many things throughout the Bible, he goes back and forth. You see? And he's not going chronologically, he's not going methodically, he's not going mathematically, so to speak, through an explanation, and some people like to have it that way. 
But God goes back and forth. And it's not that, well, it just dawned on me, so I'm injecting this point. It's, that's the way he wants us to understand it. That we have to have a lot of background and we can go back and forth. And sometimes God can go 2,000 years forward in one sentence and then go back 4,000 years uh, into the past. And we have to understand it. And by digging very deeply into it, we can put it into context. And that's why I say, background, context, then you have the meaning. Because many people are missing an awful lot of information and are misled because they don't understand simplicity uh, or sim- uh, the simple way uh, the Bible was written. That is the manner in which God wrote the Bible. And so we read in verse 6, But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And, in verse 7, And the Lord God formed men of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Again here, mistranslation in English. The word in Hebrew for breathe is not breathe, but blue. You see, when you breathe, it's sort of an involuntary, automatic uh, function of the body where you excel and you inhale and you can do it while you're asleep. It's not, always, it's not an active action, so to speak. Uh, you do it automatically. Uh, otherwise, you'll just die. And what God is trying to convey here is a very active verb. And so he used the word vaipach in Hebrew, which means, and he blew. Just like when you blow, you, you know, you, you make wind comes out of the uh, air, you know, you forcefully uh, blow it up, uh, out of your mouth, just like mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. It's no longer breathing, you see. You're blowing air into somebody's lungs or through his mouth. So it's a totally different action. And that's what he's conveying here. God blew into the nostrils of man the breath of life and man became a living soul uh, later on much later on when this creator came and lived with men and then he died and then he was resurrected and then he came back to the disciples we read also about a similar action only in this case in terms of, instead of the spirit in man that he placed in Adam which is now here called the breath of life it is speaking about the spirit in man. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, the God that died and was resurrected, he came to his disciples and he gave them now the spirit of God. And so we read in John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22. And when he said, speaking about Jesus, this, in other words, he told them, peace be upon you, and many other things, it says, and he breathed on them. And you see Again, the word for breathing here is not the English breathe, but blew. He blew on them and said, just like he breathed air out of his mouth, so to speak. But in essence, as he blew out of his mouth, the breath of life, which is the spirit in man, and placed it in Adam and Eve and made him a living being, now he blew into, so to speak, the nostrils of the disciples, And he gave them the Holy Spirit. And so when he did that, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so that's another bit of information that he put it together and you have a greater understanding of what you read in verse 7. And then verse 8 we read, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he formed. You see, up to now he created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was just glorious, and he called it very good. But now God went to 
a greater achievement. Now he planted a garden with his own hands which was even more beautiful, so to speak, than the environment which was glorious to begin with. And that tells you also something. It tells you about a spiritual creation where God is going to beautify the creation. God is going to take men which is flesh and blood and to begin with as flesh and blood as David said you have wonderfully made me and created me. God is an awesome that is God created an awesome creation in men and for that matter the animals. It's a magnificent creation but now God is going to do something even more beautiful and that's where we read uh, in terms of the creation itself, the, 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 the land, uh, the surrounding, the environment. Though it was very good, now God plants a garden which is even more beautiful. And he puts men in that. And also, that gives you about, uh, the clue of the spiritual garden of Eden, of the future, which is going to be even more glorious than the physical garden of Eden, and the physical creation. And so, as you read through that, and your knowledge matures, and is more profound and deeper, you see more and more and more into every single word that you read. And you can expand on that and expand and expand. And that's how people develop the desire and the love and the hunger and the thirst for the law of God. But the people that don't do it that way, God is not going to open their minds to have a greater knowledge and understanding. Because they show lack of understanding or lack of desire. And so, that, you might say, does not, is not conducive. Atmosphere for God to want to give you more. You have to use what you have and dig for more and search for more and hunger for more and thirst for more. Then God will give you more. And that's basically what we are seeing here. And so we read in verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made, that is, Jehovah Elohim, made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight. I mean, as it is, he said already everything was very good, but now he's doing even better. So he created every tree and every tree that was in the garden was just glorious and beautiful. There were no ugly trees there. Or, well, so-so. No, he made every tree in the garden to look pleasant, beautiful. You see? And the word, again, for pleasant, it's a, not a, a proper word. In other words, it does not really convey the Hebrew. The Hebrew for uh, pleasant here is nechmad. And from the word nechmad uh, came the word uh, covet, you see. Now, covet could be negative and it could be positive. You see, if you covet right things like I covet your prayers, that's fine. But if you covet something that should not be yours, in other words, if you desire something, if you find something pleasant that is not yours and you want it to yourself, that's the problem because that's against the law. And so, when we read the word pleasant, he's talking about the word that embodies in, in it also the concept of to covet. And covetousness, you can use it negatively or positively. Covetousness could be you desire pleasant things. It doesn't mean you're going to get it from somebody and it doesn't belong to you. You see? So, again, we're expanding and enriching our understanding of the word pleasant uh, as we go into the Hebrew and have a greater and deeper understanding. And so God created or formed and made to grow in the garden, which is a glorious creation, better than the rest of the earth, so to speak. And he makes every tree to be pleasant to the sight and good for food. Because what you see all around us, there are an awful lot of trees, the overwhelming majority of trees, that are not good for food. 
uh, to begin with, many of them have no food on them, just flowers. But every tree that he planted in the garden was pleasant to the sight and good for food. And that also gives you an idea of the spiritual context, which means that in the way of God, which is compared to the way of life, the tree of life, the fruit of the Spirit, everything should be edible, but should be good, not bad, because there are things that you eat and the poison you to death. But in the Garden of Eden, no tree that was pleasant and had fruit on it was poisonous. Everything was good. And that tells you about the reality of living in the nature of God, with the character of God, with the law of God, in the world of God. Everything there is good. Nothing is poisonous. Nothing destroys. And so you're enriching your understanding as you read all these things, because there is more to the eye, you see, more to the sight. And God wants you to go very, very deeper into it and look at every word and look for the deeper meanings that come while you study it and you go deeper and deeper into it. And so he made a tree, that is every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of a garden. So that was another tree among all the other trees that was good to the sight, that was blessed, pleasant and that was good for food. You see, and God wanted him, that is, he wanted man to have that. Then he had a, a, only one single tree of all the other trees that were pleasant to the sight and good for food. He created one more tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree has a major purpose. And guess what tree men went for? You tell a little child, don't touch that. A toy, a furniture, a book, whatever it may be. Well, the kid is going to forget about everything else in the room and he's going to go for the things that you told him don't touch. And it's something very interesting about the nature of man. It begins from a very young age. And so God plants a tree there that is symbolic of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was a fruit on it. And the fruit was good. Now, the problem with that, even though all the other trees were also good, this particular one had good and evil representation in it, while the others were not. So, in other words, you may enter into a reality where there is an awful lot of good, but if you are not careful, you are going to swallow also something that is not good, and that's something which you did not suspect may kill you. And so there is a spiritual reality there also that we have to consider. Not everything is good, and that's in essence the way Satan works. He gives you a lot of good things, and then he traps you, because he injects poison, and you don't realize that, because you think, well, this is good, this is good, this is good, I don't see anything wrong with that. And then he injects the poison, and he gets you that way. And so, that is something also for the wise to understand. Not everything in life is good. There is something that is evil, and that evil you have to avoid. And so when God says, don't touch that, you say, okay, I'm not going to touch that. Because I know that when you say, don't touch that, you are trying to protect me. And when we think that way, we have to think that way also in terms of when we study the Word of God. Not every Word of God that we study, or that we are being taught, or that we learn, is right, or true. You see? That's the way Satan works. 
gives us a lot of truth. The prophets of Satan are not teachers who are totally ignorant and give you everything bad. No, no, they give an awful lot of good. What is a counterfeit? Always think, what is a counterfeit? A counterfeit is not as far as possible from the truth. No, it is as close as possible. That means the overwhelming majority of a counterfeit is correct and right. And it's a little bit that is not correct and right that poisons you, poisons your mind and destroys you. And so think about all these matters as we go through the scriptures and in specific about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, buyers beware. Uh, always be careful of what salesmen will, will give you. It doesn't mean that everything they do is bad or everything they give you is bad, but you've got to be aware. That's why God warns us, commands us, teaches us. Prove all things. Because not every fruit is good. Somewhere, somehow, somebody's going to sneak a rotten apple or a poison apple into your basket. So be careful. Um, so this is what we read. And so in verse 10 we continue. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah. I have to know the territory during the days of Adam and Eve to know exactly where it is. Obviously, after the flood, things change a bit. We don't know exactly where every single one of them was. What we know is what happened after the flood and what names were given to certain rivers. And then we read in verse 12, And the gold of that land is good, which gives you a clue where that river went to. The dillium and the onyx stone are there. Verse 13, the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of, of Cush. Uh, in English, it's a Kash. Kash, by the way, in Hebrew means straw. So you don't want to say Kash because if you speak to somebody who speaks Hebrew, you would never know what you're talking about. It's Cush. That's the name of the land. And the name of, that is Cush, speaking about Ethiopia, nowadays, after the flood, that is. Uh, the name... Verse 14, the name of the third river is Hideko. Uh, it is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And remember, Moses is writing it from the point of view of the time when Moses is alive and that reality is there. Uh, this river and that river and the other river. So it's important to see it from that point of view. Uh, he's not writing it from the point of view when Adam was alive, but from the point of view of when he is standing on the mountain and writing what God dictates to him. And so he's bringing the name of of the land of Assyria, which obviously did not exist in the beginning. And then the fourth one is the Euphrates, and both of them are in the land of what is called today Iraq, and part of Syria, and part of Turkey. Verse 15, Then the Lord God, that is Jehovah Elohim, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. That is, he took him from a glorious environment, of which he said very good, and he put him in a more beautiful environment, which is again symbolic of the future of a spiritual condition that is going to be in the future, which is called paradise, or the Garden of Eden, that is going to be even much more beautiful than the glorious creation of God. And so he told him, as he put him in the Garden of Eden, and mind you, at this point it's only Adam, uh, Eve was not created yet. And he put the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it, not to pollute it, not to destroy it. So you see the environmental movement was born in this verse. In chapter 2 and verse 15 of Genesis 15. It wasn't born today or yesterday or a week ago or a month ago or whatever. It was from the beginning. Preservation of the land. Environmentalist mentality. That is a proper one. 
is of the mind of God. It's a part of the Torah. It's a part of the law of God. God demands that this knowledge should be there. So we should remember that. And he told him to keep it and to tend it and to take care of it, not to destroy it or to pollute it. And so we read in verse 16 now. And the Lord God commanded the man, notice he didn't suggest to him, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. You see, the garden was made of trees that did bear fruit. And one of them was a tree of life, and the other one is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when God tells him, of every tree you may eat, he's including the tree of life. So God, in essence, is commanding him, eat of the tree of life also. Just like later on he said through Moses, I said before you the way of life and the way of death. And I want you to choose. God commands us to choose. Either way. And so he's commanding here men to choose life, not to choose death. Because obviously all the trees that did bear fruit, it was for life, not for death. God was not trying to poison uh, Adam and Eve and kill them. And so he gave them food that was pleasant, that was good. So it was to the end that they may have life, not only the physical one, but the spiritual. So the first opportunity that Adam had was to have life forever, because God commanded him to eat of the tree of life, just like any other tree, because he said of every tree. And in verse 17, there is an exception. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day. And remember what we read before in verse 4, chapter 2. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In other words, we're talking now about an idiom. It doesn't mean that at the moment that you eat it, you'll die. He's talking about time. He's talking about period. He's talking about a process. So it's important to remember that. Because otherwise people read that and say, well, God lied to him. Uh, he told him in the day that you eat, you will die. And Adam didn't die that day. Well, obviously this is not what God is talking about. He's talking about the reality that you disobey my voice, you're going to end up dead. When? God was going to decide when. It could be a day, it could be a month, it could be almost a thousand years. And at this point we're going to stop and we're going to continue next time. This is again Mordecai Joseph saying, Greetings to all of God's people. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.